0: Hello, 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 and welcome to a new episode of Emotional Support. This episode is thrilling. It's exciting. It is laugh out loud funny. I am joined by happiness coach Rob Mack. I'm doing this little intro as a trigger warning. We get real. We talk about suicide. We talk about the sad thoughts that we all went through. We talk about the ups and the downs. And this show is about getting real. And sometimes it's just too much and that's okay. So this is a little warning. If you can handle it, awesome. Get ready for a great episode. And if you can't, that's okay too, because I will be back next week with a whole new, brand new, funny episode of Emotional Support. I love you. from the beginning who is Robert Mack
1: yeah. <laughs> well you know there's so many ways to answer that question but the simple answer is that I'm a positive psychology expert a celebrity happiness coach and an author and I mostly help people achieve sort of an energizing balance of um, authentic professional happiness or success and um, an authentic personal uh, happiness so in other words I help people achieve happiness through applied positive psychology. So there's actually a lazier, smarter way to achieve your goals, relationship goals, professional goals, life goals, through happiness, just by being happy. So I mostly help people discover that, Um, but- How did you
0: discover to make people happy? I mean, listen, I try to make people laugh, but I don't know about happy.
1: Yeah, I totally feel you. I mean, the hard way, of course. Alessandra, oh, I mean, I was the hot and happiest kid you could ever imagine. I was a very unhappy kid, full of stress. Really? And oh, yeah. And self-loathing. I mean, I hated myself.
0: Really? I cannot even imagine that.
1: I, well, I would receive that, but it was, yeah, it was intense. And I always thought- Were you bullied
0: probably- like a lot as a kid? I'm oh, sorry, I'm like interrupting you. No, were you it's great. bullied? Was there?
1: No, I wasn't bullied. Um, I had older cousins who were athletes and strong, and so- they, you know, folks kind of knew that. So I wasn't bullied. And I think also the, because I was so quiet and intense, I think people knew I might be a little crazy. Well, <laughs> so they just Left me alone for the most part. But it just You're
0: felt... in great company then. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, my favorite people are crazy. So it works. And listen,
0: we're the most fun. I'm sorry. I think that people who are out of the box and, yeah, I mean, I think that we're the most entertaining, we're fun. We love, just love and energy and look, I mean, you had to go through the shit that you went through obviously as a kid to get here right now. I just always find it so fascinating when people kind of truly find themselves through in quote, unquote, adulthood, you know, and how that journey was to get them there. I always say journey, and I feel like that's such a stupid, um, like, woo-woo thing to say, like, oh, what journey are you in? But it is literally a journey from, like, childhood to adulthood.
1: No, it is the journey. I mean, it really, it's <laughs> the journey, right? And like, And for yeah. most of us, I don't know about you, but I learned most things the hard way. Like, so I took the long, scenic journey and path to mm-hmm. becoming a happiness coach. I mean, I was... Suicidal for decades, for at least two decades. So, journey is definitely the right word to use um, for my experience. You know, and I, um, quite frankly, I didn't think I'd ever get to a place where I was coaching other people on how to be, you know, happy because I was the least happy person for the longest time.
0: And that was just—did you ever get diagnosed with depression or anything like that? Because that's. Not always the case, but that is a lot of the case sometimes where that 's where the suicidal thoughts come from, and that 's where the kind of like depression and the the heavy weight on your shoulders comes from, especially as children right i mean unless you're you're um you know harassed sexually harassed um, in an abusive family, bullied, if you just have a great life and you just have this feeling on top of yourself. I mean, that is something that is undeniably born with. And I think a lot of people don't believe that. And they say, oh, you can just snap out of it. It's not a big deal. Like, you know, grow some balls, right? Like that's what they always say to young boys. Like just man up, you know, buck up. But if you can't really have a pinpointed this, you know, this memory happened to me and I remembered this and it caused the PTSD for me to come this way. I mean, it's undeniable.
1: Are you telepathic? <laughs> I, <laughs> I, mean, I mean,
0: I'm not, but, <laughs> uh,
1: but that was my, that, that was precisely the, sh- the sort of challenge and struggle I had. I was like, my, uh, my life mostly, it's not like we had a ton of money. We certainly didn't have very much money. And it's not like it didn't have my challenges and stress, but wow. objectively, in terms of my conditions, And circumstances of life, like, you know, I didn't have really any reason to complain. Okay. And that being said, in some ways, it made it worse because I was like, I should feel nothing but gratitude. But Mm -hmm. deep inside, I feel nothing but clinical depression, you know, and I never did seek out, you know, a therapist and a diagnosis because one, the stigma attached to it all, I was sort of embarrassed by it. I also get the sense that most people didn't understand because occasionally I try to broach the topic and they were just like, just like you said, buck up, you know, cheer yeah. up, and so-
0: Especially being a man, I feel yeah. like that is even more, you know, people just totally deny the fact that mental health exists in, in men, and it's just absurd to me, right, it's, it's anyways.
1: Yeah, you nailed it. <laughs> and unfortunately, for so many men, it also affects women through men, right? Because mm-hmm. the only acceptable emotions for lots of young boys and men is like is anger, really. It's like anger and what else? That's about it. Maybe celebration. That's it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they express themselves through anger, their fear and their anxiety and their stress and their worry through anger um, or through celebration. And um, so, yeah, it can be quite a big problem. I and think.
0: quite I'm lonely, I'm sure. sure.
1: Yeah, for sure. Because you don't really feel like anybody can really understand it. I mean, I used yeah. to have these conversations or try to have these conversations. like, And it was such an existential conversation. So it was like, Doesn't it ever bother you that we're all thrown onto this big planet and we don't know anybody when we get here, but then we're supposed to work so hard to achieve and accomplish and acquire all these things and love each other, but then people are ripped out of your lives, they die in accidents and injury and illness, and doesn't it ever bother anybody? And people look at me like I was crazy. Like. What yeah. do you
0: mean? <laughs> you were you were probably a brilliant child as well. You were probably way beyond your years, you know, intellectually. And that probably also was a problem, right? Because you couldn't relate to other children.
1: Boy, my mom. My mom loves you. <laughs> I mean, t- truly, um, you know, I, I did well academically. I never thought of myself as being very bright or smart. Mm-hmm. You know, I excelled in the classroom, but I always sort of attributed that to just working very hard. You know, my dad kept us in line, he was a disciplinarian. So I did well academically. And yes, you're also right though, that those of us who tend to be thinkers and mm-hmm. analytical, even, even over analytical, tend to find ourselves ruminating a whole lot, which leads to that downward spiral in terms yeah. of depression and suicidal ideation, all that stuff.
0: I take it you're super close with your mom?
1: Yeah, well, yeah oh man, yeah. <laughs> oh nice, she's like my best friend, you know.
0: Mine too. So that's real cute. But I, I, the reason why I feel like I can kind of figure out the whole childhood thing with you, and I'm psychic, um, but beyond sure. being psychic, I understand that because I was very similar to that as a child. I was extremely overambitious. I was an only child. So that kind of I feel like was also a lot of pressure, um, in a good way, not in a not in a bad way. But I I strived so hard to be a perfectionist, and if I wasn't a perfectionist, that's when I would kind of self punish myself. Of you know, I I couldn't cross thresholds. I I just used to do so much stupid stuff that I look back at it now and I'm like, what was wrong with you, you know? And it was so hard for my mom because. I'm 33, so back in, back in the day, because I'm so <laughs> old. But, but even literally, you know, 10 years ago, bipolar disorder, which is what I'm diagnosed with, that was something that was not discussed. That was like not a, <laughs> not a thing. And my mom was very evolved when it came to spirituality and Eastern medicine and stuff like that. And she would have me starting at five years old when I started having issues go to hypnotherapy go to special doctors you know try flowers under you know flower um, spray under the tongue like anything i possibly could but there was no solution to finding the problem of bipolar disorder because it's literally a chemical imbalance in the brain so no how matter all the woo woo you do like it doesn't it it helps but it can't fix the problem so i feel like i i understand Knowing who you are now, even the little bit that I know, what you must have been going through as a young child if you did feel that depression as hard as you did.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and thank you so much for sharing that. That's so powerful and profound, Um, I think, for all of us to know, especially myself. And I agree with you. Like I feel very much like I was born um, with a genetic predisposition to be less happy than your average kid, and we do know that, like at least fifty percent of happiness is heritable, right? That it's inheritable. That that you know, fifty percent of our happiness is attributable to a genetic predisposition, and that genetic predisp- predisposition can be changed. So it's not like eye color or hair color. It can actually or height that is stuck. You know that you're just hardwired for the rest of your life. It can be changed, and it is plastic. But the whole piece around what you said in terms of like the chemical imbalance and the ways in which I felt very much like this was something that I couldn't change mm-hmm. and that I couldn't fix or find any relief from at all was just so deeply like woven into the way I would think about the whole experience of it that I really for a long time didn't even really seek solutions. I just mm-hmm. assumed that it continued to get worse and that one day I'd just have to kill myself. That was pretty much the way I thought it would play out, you know, and um, how
0: old were you when you kind of not even just the suicidal thoughts, but where you accepted that fact where, well, this is life.
1: I think I really fully accepted, started to really fully accept it, I guess, when I was probably about 16 or 17, because I had this one last dream that I'd become a professional basketball player. And I worked very hard at it. You know, I was like, this will be the thing that saves me. I'll become a professional basketball player, and then I'll attract all the beautiful women I wanna attract, and I'll have all the friends I finally wanna have, and I'll have the life that I finally wanna have, and then I'll be able to, you know, share that money with other people, and then they'll like me too, and all this, this whole story, and then I got pneumonia my senior year in high school, and that dream went out the window, and that's when I was kinda like, oh, this is now my life. Like, I am just going to be destined to be miserable, and deeply depressed forever unless I kill myself that's the only way I saw it
0: right that was the that was the solution to the problem well on a side note talking about basketball I am the biggest basketball queen of all time and when I was a kid I was convinced that Dennis Rodman was my best friend (laughs) and I would take my I hated Barbies and people would always give me Barbies as a kid and I would cut her hair and I would magic marker it to whatever his hair color was that game so my whole goal was I wanted to be whoopi goldberg and eddie and coach the chicago bulls that oh didn't that dream did not come true um i'm hoping that i if i have children and i had a son that he would be a basketball player but i'm five foot three so the odds really aren't with me um <laughs> but i understand that that's the like final dream <laughs> i understand that
1: So this is amazing i don't think i've ever heard anyone with as much passion about passion <laughs> like, so did you watch the last dance you've seen the last dance of or- course okay. i mean game over i have been addicted to that last dance since this whole you know since it aired a couple months ago but yes yeah i mean let
0: me tell you the bubble of the nba is the only thing getting me through COVID. <laughs> I had a video that my husband took of me where I was hysterically crying because he walked in on me and he's like, why are you crying? Because I could cry now because it was the opening day of the bubble. And he's like, what's wrong with you? I go, is it happening? My life is worth living again. <laughs> like... So oh my God. I completely understand um, the fanatics behind that um, and the whole suicide thing, but that's okay. <laughs> like we don't have to go that that deep. But but yeah, and I think that you know it's not uncommon where there is an event that happens in someone's life that makes that turn to be like, well, I'm going to give up. So it's interesting that that the pneumonia uh, was for you because I'm assuming you were at home for a long time.
1: Yeah, it was like nine months um wow yeah nine months i had pneumonia so and, and i i didn't think i would I, I quite frankly i thought i would probably die from the pneumonia but i didn't um and uh you know i think part of the problem was that i was trying to play through the emo- pneumonia at first and then finally i was just bedridden and um you know yeah so when i didn't get a college scholarship naturally after that pneumonia-ridden season i you know went to college but i just felt more and more like you know i should really. Explore this suicide thing. So I started doing research about like the ways to kill myself. Um, Eventually, I decided I was going to slit my wrist. So went into the kitchen one day, got a kitchen knife, dug into my wrist, and had the strangest experience happen. Like, you know, as much as you may want to kill yourself, the whole point is to escape the pain, not to increase the pain. So I didn't want to experience more physical pain. But so I dug the knife in, kind of as to see how painful it was going to be, and for no good reason, without anything in my life externally changing, I felt like joy and peace and even love in that moment. Release, right?
0: You felt release.
1: Yeah, it was release. So in that moment, I was like, well, maybe I should explore this depression thing, this happiness thing, the suicide thing. And like, I'll postpone the suicide for like an hour. That was like it. It was just like one hour. I mean, even at a time, one hour was like way too much. Honestly, I was like, I'm not going to, there's no way I can last another hour.
0: Right, right.
1: Um, And I started doing research and started learning a lot.
0: Now, your family, were they aware of the depression that you were going through and these thoughts that you were having?
1: Not really, no. I mean, I think they always felt that I was probably uh, not as happy (laughs) as I could be. But no, I think I, I did a pretty good job of, you know, keeping that quiet. You know, I would try now and then to have little conversations, but I realized that what I was experiencing was much different a uh, life than what mo- most of my family and friends and colleagues were experiencing. So I didn't, uh, no, I didn't really advertise.
0: When you went to college, did you feel a little more escape of, happiness almost where you're like, well, at least I've gotten to this next step.
1: Um, not so much. Eventually I did, but right away the experience was like, man, so I don't even have to wait to die before the people I love the most are ripped away from me. It was kind of that experience. Like even though I knew I had to go to no. college because that was the thing to do, I still wasn't really wanting to leave my family. So I felt ex- even more alienated and isolated. I think class didn't really help because it was super stressful and anxiety ridden and like you I was perfectionist and mm-hmm. because I couldn't ever really be perfect I beat myself up for not being perfect which right. in itself right. is a problem, you know. And then I feel like I had a little or a lot of OCD. So I was mm-hmm. kind of very O C D about lots of things. And so all these things started to compound, you know. Um How
0: far in school were you when you had your suicide attempt?
1: Oh, so I made it through college and it was after college. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. I I think, you know, part of it was, I was afraid of like, you know, I think just all those people knowing who I was, I went to a pretty small school, but there were, you know, maybe 1300, 1400 students. And it just, where did you go? I went to Swarthmore outside of Philadelphia, small little. Oh yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: And, uh, you know, great school. And boy, do I love that education there. And, uh, but yeah, it was tough. It was tough for me.
0: Did you create a lot of friends in college or was it kind of hard just to even connect?
1: Great question. So I don't know about you, but when I think about and thought about college, I always thought it should be a social education. When I went to Swarthmore at first, I was like, oh, this is not, I always thought big fraternity parties and like, right. you, know, right. parties, you know, getting out and about and becoming more social individual but that didn't happen so at some point i think it was my sophomore year the second semester i transferred to uva for a semester because oh, wow yeah because i was like you I,
0: wanted to live a college life
1: yeah i'm like maybe i can try to learn to be more social maybe that'll provide a little happiness and uh i did that and i discovered that kids there at uva were more social like you know they yeah. weren't as introverted it seemed and uh but i also recognized that i First of all, I had a full ride at Swarthmore academically, so I was like, oh, I was also like the education there feels like a better fit for me. So I went back Mm -hmm. to Swarthmore, but I did take this like social education kind of crash course back with me to Swarthmore. And I just tried to apply more of the social stuff. So I got better socially, uh, but I still continued to struggle, um, you know, in terms
0: of were you majoring in anything like psychology or anything?
1: I was. I wow. was. Majoring psychology. Yeah.
0: I it's, didn't even know that.
1: <laughs> I, you. I mean, I th- told you. You are psychic. I mean, it's amazing. I used in psychology, and in some ways, actually, that was a very help. That was very helpful for me because I started. I'm getting- sure. Yeah. Were you a psychology major?
0: I didn't go to college. No. <laughs> oh,
1: bless you. Good for you. Save save yourself a hundred thousand dollars <laughs> easily. No,
0: I mean. Well, that's not true. I sort of did. I was like, I mean, I'm still an actress, but I had been doing acting since I was a child. I was being homeschooled. And then when I hit middle school, I wanted to be normal. So I went to a normal um, private little small school in LA. It was great. My best friend to this day is still from there. Um, It was perfect for me. I got a TV show and the school wouldn't let me go shoot it in Australia. Um, and so I had to make the choice and the choice was, well, I'm going to go do a TV show. Um, so I went and did that. I took my high school proficiency exam and I started doing junior college at SMC online for two years. Um, by the time I was 16 and a half. And I applied to a bunch of schools and I got into amazing schools, but I kept delaying because I was working and I'm like, oh, I'll eventually go to this. I'll go here. And my family always thought I'd go to MIT and University of Pennsylvania for Wharton School of Business. And I was like, no, I want to dance <laughs> hard pass. Um, and hard pass on that. But yes, so I, I come from a family of computer technology, business individuals, engineers, I came out completely different, but I understand how important education is and that it is something I can always go back to. And I did really quite enjoy school. I was great at math and science. I was terrible at English and all of that, which is funny that I'm an actress. It just, I have a mathematical mind. So it was very hard for me to focus and concentrate on that. Um... So, yes. So, no, I did not go to college, but I do like to live vicariously through college when I play college students still at 33 years (laughs) old.
1: (laughs) That's the best. I love that. And that's, you know, there's nothing better than getting paid to go through a, you know, virtual, vicarious experience of, of college. Right. And quite frankly, I think that it's a lot more fun, I would imagine, doing it that
0: way. (laughs) It was a lot of fun. It definitely is a lot of fun. But yes, I mean, sometimes I do think that I miss that experience. And I know like for high school, I was glad that I was there till I think the middle of my sophomore year. And it was fun to experience those things. But at the same time, I didn't quite understand it. I fit in. I was like super popular. At least I thought I was and I enjoyed it. But I never, I, I had always two separate friends. Minus my friend, my best friend, I'll leave her out of the equation, but I had my dancer friends from when I was a competitive dancer as a kid, and that's the kids that I really, those were the people I really were myself around, Um, and then I had friends that were in school that were great, and I was very friendly with and close with, but they never really knew the true me. And I'm a Gemini and so I always feel like I am split personality where I have, you know, one persona and I have the next. So I was very happy to go through these things and experience like what you did with the college, but I knew that it wasn't um for me going to the frat parties, doing all that. That wasn't something that I was craving, you know.
1: You're such a genuinely interesting person. Oh, you, you know, it's like it is funny because I mean it's in the in the best way. You're like Well, you're so multifaceted and multi-passionate, you know. I got a
0: lot. I got way too much going on in this.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I got a lot going on. It's amazing. I mean, it's incredible to me. And that Gemini experience resonates too, because I would always call myself a chameleon. You know, I'm a Sagittarius, but still I felt like, you know, maybe I had a friend or two here and there that I could be my authentic self with. But most Mm -hmm. people, I just gave them whatever they needed to get in order to kind of, maintain some semblance of a friendship, but really it was just, but there shout. wasn't
0: really that connection. Yeah. So after college you had this, this moment of, you know, needing the release. We'll say that. Cause I think that's the, that's, you know, I've, I've spoken to a lot of doctors about this when they, they talk about suicide and they say, Oh, they committed suicide. No, the, the, the words are died by suicide or, you know, it wasn't just, I say attempt and I know that that's wrong or maybe it's not wrong. there's been so many things that I've learned and I'm trying to like process it all. But what I understand, because I had that situation, the same thing, for me, I got very angry and tried to drive off Mulholland and I failed, thank God. But like I was 16 years old and I had this moment where I was like exploding inside because I was put on antidepressants, which does the worst shit that could possibly happen with someone that's bipolar. It's higher, higher, and lower lows. But that being said, just experiencing that and feeling those feelings felt like like a breath of fresh air. And now I look back and I'm like, I can't believe I did that. But I don't think that I could be here having this conversation. So if that made it worth it, but like that's a blah 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 of myself. But it's that release, right? It's that you can finally breathe. Like I was never someone that, that was a cutter or anything, but I've talked to people who were, and it's all the same fucking feeling. It's all the same. Like you just feel, you feel life. Like you feel like you're fucking alive. And then it's like, oh shit. Like I do feel alive. Like this is real life.
1: (laughs) You nailed it. I mean, so well expressed and that's exactly it. And in some ways that experience, the one you just described, gave me a little clue that there might be an opportunity for me to experience more of that. I thought, well, if I can have one moment like that, why can't I have two? Why can't I have 2,000 or 200,000, you know? And so you're right though, that is one of the common themes I've discovered as well, that, you know, most of us have experienced that life-affirming moment when we feel finally, truly, really alive, Mm -hmm. and it is a feeling of release, And we all just want more of that, you know, Mm -hmm. and um, I also will say, you know, back to the point you made earlier, you know, I sometimes joke that I only trust people who have been through some kind of extraordinarily depressing or, you know, upsetting, anxiety ridden, stressful, you know, experience in their life. Totally, you know, because it makes you a lot more sensitive to what truly matters in life. And I think there's an intelligence in that. Um, and there's just an appreciation for life, I think, in a greater, deeper, fuller mm-hmm. way. Um, and for people, too. You know, you can su- suddenly really sympathize and empathize with people who have been through similar experiences or who haven't been through similar experiences but are suffering in their own unique way.
0: Mm-hmm. So when you Google happiness, were you happy?
1: Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, oof. So it I mean took that's me- a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. I mean, and it, you know, I sort like you i mean you are just as educated on this topic as you know as anybody and i just aimed to really educate myself as much as i could about all of it and i started with the science of course and i did find like how many people were unhappy and how many more people were unhappy since 1950 like we had this was like let's call it the early 2000s There was like 10 times more bipolar depression in early 2000s than there was in 1950. And we had more, you know, access one and access two disorders. We had more stress and anxiety. You know, we had more, you know, the average age for the first bout of depression went from 29 and a half years of age to like 13 years of age. Like, you know, so you had, you know, in 1950, 30 year olds, but then in the early 2000s, all of a sudden it was 13 and a half year olds. And I think it's Mm -hmm. even younger than that now. So there was something certainly going on you know, socially, culturally, nationally, globally, right. where people were feeling increasingly unhappy despite living increasingly higher a higher quality of life, right? Mm-hmm. We, call it the, we call it the progress paradox, that as life has gotten better, people have often consistently felt worse for it, you know? So I started looking at all of this and I started finding all this information and data and science that had been, conducted around depression and suicidal ideation and rumination and learned helplessness and happiness.
0: And I bet you felt that you were not alone.
1: (laughs) That was the first real insight was like, oh, wow, this is way more common than I would have gleaned simply by having conversations with people because people aren't really incentivized to have the conversation. I mean, they're not like you, right? They're like-
0: Well, and, and still I feel like there's a lot of people um, I've been really blessed that, that everyone that I've interviewed has been so open and honest and, and trying to help as much as they possibly can just by telling their stories. But I know that I've talked to a lot of people outside of this, um, whether it be at conferences or whatever, and they are in the business of mental health and advocacy and all this, yet they can't actually be truthful. And they kind of switch things around and make it more about, oh, self-love and all this stuff. I'm like, that's great. But when something's really wrong with you and you can't help it, it's something you're born with. Sometimes telling yourself over and over is not really gonna confidently change your mind to be to be better. Yes, these are bonuses, but I, I do find that even people who, who are specializing in this field can speak on others but themselves. It's that vulnerability they're not ready to be open about.
1: Oh, there's so much insight and wisdom there. I mean, what you just shared, like, you know, you're absolutely right. Like part of it is respecting each individual journey for what it is. That's the one mm-hmm. piece, you know, is that I, and I want to always be careful about that. I can say, look, this is what I've gleaned from science. This is what I've gleaned from my own personal experience. And each person is, an, is their own entity and individual and to respect that experience and that journey is right. critical and it's paramount. Like that's just right. the other piece of it. Right. nailed it is, you know, folks have a real hard time being who they truly are and expressing and putting words to who they truly are, especially if they don't know who they truly are, right? Or they're scared and right. concerned that other people might not accept them for who they are. And that's just as true if not more true among that mental health community um, mm-hmm. as there's anywhere else in the world, right? Just because, and in fact, I would say that, you know, um, coaches and therapists struggle with that. Um, and a lot of them are led to do the coaching and therapy because they struggle with it. And they're led to sort of, maybe they're seeking solutions to their own issues and problems, but sometimes and often it's easier just to simply talk to other people about what they should do than <laughs> yeah. do it for yourself. Yeah. Right. So you're absolutely right about that. I mean, it's problematic in a way, but it's also a huge opportunity, I think, for all of us to just, you know, do what we can to hold space for other Mm. people to be who they truly are without judgment, condemnation, or arguing or trying to convince them that they should be doing something other than what they're doing. You know, I think that's the problem.
0: It's funny. I forgot who it was. If someone was on this show talking about it or a friend, and I'm totally I'm totally blanking right now, but someone said, you know, the more fucked up your therapist is, the better they're going to be because <laughs> they have gone through so much and they have experienced their own trauma and they have maybe not been able to heal themselves, right? Because therapists go to their own therapist, but they've- they've figured something out. They have some tool that can help you out that help them. Um, So, yeah. So when you get into this and you got into the happiness and you kind of had this, this, this feeling of, Oh, I'm, this is the path I'm supposed to be on. What's the first step even?
1: Yeah. So the first step quite honestly for me was to track the best and brightest best practices like the best mm-hmm. tips and tricks in terms of how to increase your happiness level. Like I was just trying everything and tracking it in a little journal. And yes, that journal right. later <laughs> a book. Yeah. But it was not ever really meant to help anybody else. But me, I was no. here that I was drowning. And I was I like, I think
0: that that is so important. You should yeah. always, always, always write down your feelings. You should write down what works for you, what doesn't work for you and kind of create that pattern.
1: Totally, like, and to be as uncensored about it as possible. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I I took off, you know, that you know, in a a car sometimes in this really fast cars they usually put on the governors on the cars right to limit the speed so they couldn't right just strip that governor right off (laughs) and be as uncensored about what works for you and what doesn't. You know, because unless you're completely, truly, you know, uncensored in your honesty, you're never gonna really be able to get to the root of either the problem or the solution. So yeah, okay. I did that in the beginning. Honestly, I didn't come up with a whole lot. I did know that what I was doing wasn't working. So I kind of mm-hmm. started just trying to do the exact opposite thing. So if right. like sitting at home and reading books all day wasn't working, I was like, maybe I just need to go out and party all the time. And I found out that doesn't right. work either. But like, <laughs> you, know, you have to really, you know, sort of- I turned Trial into- and error. That's right. It was an experiment on myself.
0: Yeah. Trial and error. And then did you- Decide to use your psychology degree to become a psychologist, like because yeah. a lot of people do the psychology degree and then they're like, Well, I don't really want to do this.
1: <laughs> Good question. So, yeah, I did the undergrad in psychology, I went to work for a consulting firm for a few years because I didn't know what else to do. And mm. when and then I decided I was going to go back and get my business degree, I was really wow. lost. Okay, I went back to get the MBA, and then along the way, as I'm reading all these science books and I'm really starting to get into them. I discovered this program at Penn. It's a master's. Yeah, I know. Amazing. I'm telling you, like the parallels here. I should
0: have gone there, but I didn't.
1: Uh, No, you are, uh, you just keep doing what you're doing because it's worked (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: really well. (laughs) Uh,
1: Yeah. And um, so I went to Penn, did this applied um, positive psychology program and graduated from there. And I was already beginning to sort of open my practice because what happened was, as I was making some progress with myself, other people were noticing it and they were also noticing Mm -hmm. that I was kind of obsessed with just like this one conversation about depression and happiness and unhappiness and suicide. And so they just said, hey, is it cool? We talked to you. And so it became kind of a thing. They're like, you know. Oh, cool. Yeah. So it kind of grew that way, but it was mostly really only from the beginning, a purely selfish endeavor I just didn't want to be miserable. you know.
0: And that's totally fair. I mean, yeah. you know, people can say you're selfish for following, you know, your path or your dreams or whatnot, but you you have to follow that gut instinct as long as it makes sense and it's like practical, right? Because we all have to know like, okay, you know, you do need food, you do need money on the table. But... But it is, it, 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 you, once you help yourself and you figure out your own life, you help out so many more people.
1: Well, that's just it. Like, we, we all have enough guesses of our own. Like, I don't really need anybody mm-hmm. else's guesses. And I don't want to give other people my guesses. You right. know, I want to give things to people and, and say, look, this is what worked for me without question. It may yeah. not work for you. But the, what I don't want to do is say, why don't you try these 29 things? none of which really worked for me, or I haven't tried any of them. Right. And now, you know, report back. It's like, uh, I, can, I have my own guesses on things. I'd rather try out my own guesses than your guesses. Right. So I feel like you, you know, I'd rather, you know, there's nothing like a lived experience mm-hmm. um, to give you.
0: Nothing better.
1: Energy, right? <laughs> it's just like, you can't, you can't, you know, you can't live this life, you know, virtually or by for to other people. You have to live it yourself.
0: Were you in L.A. when you were doing all of this?
1: Oh, boy. So that's a great question. So I was in – Or are
0: you not in L.A.? I just assumed you are in L.A.
1: Yeah. Well, it's a very L.A. story. You know? Yeah.
0: LA. It's like, in the best way possible, I think L.A. stories are the best stories. They are.
1: They are. I was in – I grew up in Pittsburgh, went to school in Philadelphia, both Swarthmore and Penn, and then I did – and stayed in entertainment for like 10 years um, while I was going to business school in Miami, which I love. Miami's amazing. Cool. Yeah.
0: Made. What What kind of industry were you in?
1: The I was, porn uh, industry? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't get paid that well. <laughs> no, that well. I was doing a, I was a model for like 10 years. So I was with uh, Wilhelmina and LA Models and Elite. And then I um, did some acting for a while. I did a short uh, little stint on the CW, a show called South Beach. and. Um,
0: oh my God, amazing. I forgot about that show. That was that show? great.
1: Oh my yes. God, it was a great experience. Like I didn't have a huge role or part, but it was so much fun just because it was so Miami.
0: Yeah. Wait, that's really interesting that you were a model and you were going through all of this stuff. Now this is such a general assumption. I have friends who are models, but I am not in that world, but I feel like that is tougher than even acting because you are being judged strictly on body and face. Like, that's bananas that yeah. you went and did that after everything you were going through.
1: It is. And you make such a great point. Now, look, I was starting to come up out of this deep, dark, depressing hole that I had right. sort of like for myself. So, thank God. But when I get in the modeling, strangely enough, it was also a huge relief. And I think that's also because I was a guy. I mean, the experience is right. a guy, a, like a blue collar catalog model. Like, you know, you just do your little thing. And you're mostly often a prop, and it's one business where, you know, uh, the, you know women really get the attention there. So the hard work and the responsibility is really on them. And so the stress and the anxiety of being- Oh,
0: interesting.
1: It's very, yeah. you know, on a, on a, I mean, particularly a young girl, it's extraordinarily difficult. I can't imagine how overwhelming that must be yeah. uh, in those formative years of your life. But I was older and as a guy, and so for me, it was just like some fun. I'll make some, you know, milk money, and maybe I can get through yeah. another week. You know, And, and my, you obviously
0: my got bit by the camera bug as to why you probably came out to L.A.
1: Well, yeah. So it's interesting. So after that experience, I enjoyed it, um, but I mostly enjoyed the conversations, you know, like offset about yes. happiness, quite frankly. Yeah. And as I was building my sort of happiness coaching practice, um, you know, I would get calls about TV shows. And then eventually I got a call to do a TV show with a mutual friend of ours, Laurel House, and Dr. Darcy Sterling on E called Famously Single. And I was a celebrity, like love coach. Oh my
0: God, wait, wasn't that what Paulie D? Yes. And- yes. yes. <laughs> wait, I totally watched that show and Aubrey O'Day, yes. right? She was, is that her last name? That's Aubrey right. Aubrey O'Day. Yes. And that's how they met.
1: That's right. That's how they met. Exactly. Oh my God, I
0: have to go back and watch it knowing that was you now.
1: Oh. Please don't.
0: <laughs> oh my God. No, I love, I love, I love love shows and dating shows. Wait, so you went on there as the happiness coach?
1: Yeah. So I was a love coach. Laurel was the mm. other love coach. And then we had Dr. Darcy Sterling, who was like the host and the therapist of the show, right? But we'd right. all do like the group coach, sort of the group therapy group coaching together. And, you know, we'd provide dating and relationships sort of tips to Polly yeah. and Aubrey O'Day and Jessica White and all those folks.
0: Oh my gosh. And so did you like that experience?
1: I did. I loved it. I mean, yeah. it was interesting because there was a short period in my life when I was like sort of trying to sell TV shows. And then I kind of put that in the back burner and said, you know, I got into this business, one, to make sure I was happy. And then two, right. to help other people be happy. And I felt like I was getting a little bit sidetracked by that, but just trying to entertain. Like there are much better entertainers in the world than me. I'm not really right. nature by nature, sort of entertainer. So I put it away. And of course, like life loves that kind of experience where you suddenly say, oh, I'm not gonna do this thing because that's when they come knocking, right? Mm -hmm. So I, you know, entered back in sort of reluctantly. I didn't even really want, I wasn't sure I wanted to do a reality TV show. Mm -hmm. I just thought this is gonna be a disaster and I don't wanna be the center of a disaster experience. But it wasn't that, it was pretty profound because honestly, a lot of the conversations we had were so much deeper and more meaningful Mm -hmm. than everything that was caught on tape or that got, to air, right? So right. it was a great experience. And it was a learning experience too. Um, yeah. You know, for me both professionally, but also personally.
0: So what was the happiness and the love tip and trick? Like what was the number one you would give the celebrities?
1: Enjoy the dating experience. Please enjoy the dating experience. Like everybody wants to rush to the end of it and they're married and they have kids and they have the ticket fence and whole yeah. nine. But like the very thing that gets most in the way of a happy, healthy and successful date or relationship is always prioritizing some future moment over the present one, you know. And mm-hmm. all that means is that you're distracted the entire experience, and you're trying to get to some place through desperation and neediness. And there's nothing less attractive than that. So it was that tip expressed or shared, you know, a dozen different hundred times. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, oh my God, totally. And what would you say? So you wrote the book about happiness. What would you say that people always ask you the most about?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I think folks will ask me probably most consistently about can I be happy and successful? Like mm. what choose? And then they'll ask about how to support other people who are extraordinarily unhappy or toxic or negative or deeply depressed or suicidal. I That's an
0: amazing an question.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is. I bet you could speak to that one really well though.
0: Yes and no. I feel like I don't know. I'll ask your opinion, right? So I'm someone that is very vocal and I obviously like just like once you set me free on on me expressing what a problem is, I'm like like letting it all out, right? But I, I have to recognize now in my life, I am so forward and I'm so honest that a lot of people either can't handle it and it's too much information for them and it's too much honesty where they shut down um, or they will compare and go, well, look at how how good she's doing. And she went through all this. I can never do that. So I, I have this weird balance of expressing how good I'm doing and then expressing the honesty of how bad I'm doing. Also, I guess my question is, I don't really know how to deal with people who don't want to be, it's not just honest, but don't Want to be as expressive of their emotions if they're going through depression or if they're going through anxiety, Um, you know? People can say it to me, and I'll try to open up, but it's uncomfortable, and I don't know the 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 how far I can really take that. Like, what would you recommend for that?
1: Yeah, I mean, you just expressed it so beautifully there. I, I would say that number one, and most importantly, is you've got to maintain your own. Center and balance and peace in conversation mm-hmm. with other people, particularly those folks who are struggling the most. It's like wanting to save someone who's drowning in the ocean, but not being a strong swimmer yourself. So, you've got to do that in the conversation. So, number one is somewhere deep inside you, you have to know all as well. And you cannot get pulled or sucked into the story that everything is going wrong or that if this person makes a decision, like killing themselves that something has gone quote unquote wrong okay i'm not saying mm-hmm. that you won't miss them i'm not saying that it's not deeply disturbing and upsetting i had a roommate college roommate that killed himself about 10 months ago right but like mm-hmm. deep down inside you have to be to the best of your effort and access to the best of your effort with this other person is having trouble being or accessing so that means peace and it means some level of joy if you can mm-hmm. and a, deep knowing that all is well. That is the most important piece. The other piece of that is, you don't need to put words to that. Just meet them where they are. Ask questions from a place of innocence, curiosity, and non-judgment. And also, do what you can to reflect back, in your own words, without judgment, what you hear them saying, in order just to get confirmation, and just to validate and normalize how they're feeling. So you say things like, so if I heard you correctly, Joe, what I heard you say is this, and I hear you correctly. That validation, normalization, and then empathy piece is like 90% of the whole game. So the empathy piece mm-hmm. is something just as simple as if I were in your shoes, I'd be feeling and thinking and behaving just like you. And that's not just a figurative truth. That's a literal truth. You would literally be them. So you would mm-hmm. be showing up just in the way they are. And the other final point I'm and then I'll stop, is- you No, know-
0: I, I this is so amazing. Keep going, yeah. please.
1: It's like not trying to get in there fix, solve, persuade, persuade, convince, any of that. That you don't want to do any of that. The second you start doing that is the second you get a knee-jerk reaction where a person wants to double down and defend their right not to share what they actually feel or defend their right to kill themselves or defend their right to be depressed or whatever it is. So you don't want to get in there and do any of that. At some point later in a more evolved place and stage you can begin to model for them what a positive reframe on the fly looks like um you know it's essentially the heart and the essence of cognitive behavioral therapy but yeah the most important thing of all is to find that place inside you where you know despite what this other person is thinking and feeling you know that all is still well and Mm -hmm. a very hard place for most of us to access so we have to practice it when it's easy when we're not in the company of people who are really struggling
0: oh my god i love 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 that i think that that is Going to be so helpful for everyone listening right now because I think that we have all been there, um, whether you're super close with someone or not really, but you still feel like you you want to help out in some sort of connection. I think that COVID has obviously fucked all of us. Like, excuse me for saying that, but like that's just the truth. And I think a lot of people, myself included, have felt that depressing attitude and that sulking behavior and not wanting to like leave the bed is there something that is happy that we can do to change that mindset even if it's just 1% yeah
1: i love you saying that so you know there are lots of things we can do you know one thing i think is most important is to simply identify what you might call your happiness islands or pleasure islands or inspiration islands but basically the people, places, things, activities that with very little time, energy, effort make you feel uplifted or excited to be alive or allow you to feel that release in a healthy way. And again, you want to be uncensored about it. So like it'd be simple things. Like I love people watching, quite frankly. Like it's one of my favorite things. It's like- love, Right? Like it's yeah. so fun. And I'm like, I haven't been doing any of that because of course, locked into my closet in LA, you know, and yeah. so just creating a list of things that and you don't have to put like- you don't have to create a COVID version right away. Just create your regular version. You know, don't put mm-hmm. any limitations on it. And then we can talk about how we can begin to like carve out time to schedule those things into our calendar, our life more consistently so that we can mm-hmm. live a much more inspired life. And, you know, even with the current, under the current circumstances. So I'd say that's one simple thing. It doesn't require, you know, a whole lot of manipulation of your life. And it doesn't require you doing a deep dive or anything like that yet, but you just want to begin to remember what makes you feel or come alive.
0: And uh oh um, totally, totally. Now, what is next for Robert Mack?
1: Yeah, that's what it's <laughs> next. That's a great question. It's a great question. Um, I think about that often. I'm I'm probably the worst person ever in terms of like goal setting and stuff. I was obsessed with that <laughs> as a kid and it didn't go well for me. But you know
0: what? It's not, it's not for everyone. I'm not a goal setter. I have to, I I can't even, it is so hard for me with this podcast planning guests because I'm someone like, I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow. I, I can't figure this out. Can't we just talk the morning of and decide? So this is a very new thing for me to be planning like this. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I know not even being a goal setter, but is there Something that you haven't accomplished that, that you're like, oh, I want to do that.
1: Yeah, I love So two things I'm going to say. First, I have to underscore something you said that's just brilliant. <laughs> so my uh, one of my friends, um, she was an executive producer for the Oprah Winfrey show for like 25 years, okay? And I remember once asking her, I said, what was the secret to like creating Oprah and the Oprah yeah. Winfrey show? And she said, you know, Rob, the first, I think, season or two, we didn't have any idea what we were going to do in terms of the show until the day we showed up on set that morning, we'd all be like, okay, what's going on in your life? And what's going on in your life? What's going on in your life? And whoever had the most interesting go- thing going on in their life, we'd be like, that's today's show. And I remember thinking, wow, really? Wow. Yeah. So there's magic in that. obviously. Okay. <laughs> you know, so it's working for you. Um, and then for me, I'd say that, you know, I, there's a, well, I, did, you know, I wrote four books, so they're going to be released in the next two years. Four? So two, yeah. Oh, and,
0: my God. God. oh my god, <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. that's crazy oh my god
1: but you know what it's like to be a nerd you know how many thoughts you have in yeah. your yeah you, you probably have at least two dozen books in your head right now
0: yeah at least, yeah
1: you know so i'm gonna do that um a couple shows i've got uh, maybe three or four shows that are being pitched so you know in la everybody's got 12 projects they're pitching at the same time mm-hmm. so we'll see where those land and then other than that You know, I would just like to continue enjoying my life as humanly possible. Would really love them to put a wrap on the COVID thing. Looking forward to that. You know, I'm looking forward to whoever is in charge of this life thing, putting a wrap on that. Um,
0: Have the aliens come at this point? Honestly,
1: I'm I'm like, maybe. I'm kind of obsessed with aliens and looking forward to that, actually.
0: I am like ready for them. I'm like, um, if you ever saw Mars Attacks, you know how, did you ever see that movie? And how they're all standing there with signs and they're like, we're ready. I'm like, I'm ready. Like show up already. Like, but they're too embarrassed. They don't want to come. They're like, this is too messy. We're not going to deal with this. But, um, and but yeah, I mean, I think that once things do clear up and I'm sure you can see your clients more and there's something that's that's very different. This is really fun to do. Zoom and it's exciting. And, you know, we never would have met and done this podcast if there wasn't for a Zoom, because yeah, you could do it over the phone, phone, but it's not as fun, right? You don't get to actually see each other's reactions and stuff like that. But there is something so special that no one can deny that just being able to feel someone's presence just really is a game changer. So I hope that's-
1: I completely agree with you. And I love you saying that, and it's interesting. And that's especially true. I would imagine people must reflect that back to you all day because you have such a genuinely powerful presence and it comes or through. Or
0: exhausting. The- I don't
1: know. No, it's not exhausting to me. I promise. It's energizing to me. Like and it comes through the screen, I think it's your authenticity. Um, but also there's, you've obviously got charisma and spade. So.
0: I appreciate that. Well, can I ask you a final question? Please. Rob, what is your emotional support?
1: Oh boy! I've gotta say, yeah, it's probably an, it's at least three things I know that's probably a cheat answer, but
0: no, it's not at all
1: okay, so number the first thing is I would say um is exercise, so like I'm kind of addicted, and music and exercise is like the best thing, okay for me like and i I don't do it because it's the right thing to do. I do it because I honestly feel so much better when I'm done
0: endorphins I'm
1: um, that, that, I mean, happy yeah. yeah, um secondly, I would say that. You know, books. Oh man, do I love my books! I mean, my "Don't Kill Yourself" books are just gold. <laughs> you yes, know? yes. Yeah, like, love those books. And then the third thing is, um, is on, is I just, I guess I'll call it meditation. But that sounds way too kind of abstract and esoteric. It's really just spending as much of my day as I can, not thinking and just breathing or swiffering mm-hmm. or whatever. Like I sometimes call it practicing the presence. But it's mostly just getting out of my head. And Mm -hmm. I find that to be as blissful an experience as I've ever had, just doing that consistently. So those are my three emotional supports. And then of course you've got good old mom. She's Oh my
0: God, mom must be the cutest thing ever.
1: She's the go-to man. My whole family, they're all the most incredible. I mean, I I can't imagine having a more incredible family. Oh, my gosh.
0: And I bet she's so proud of you.
1: <laughs> well, see, she tells me that. Sure, I'm sure <laughs> I've disappointed her in plenty of ways and will continue to do so, but she would never say so.
0: <laughs> but right now you're good to go. Oh, my exactly. gosh. Well, thank you so much, Rob.
1: The pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much. <laughs> I am just so overwhelmed with gratitude. Thanks for having me. Oh,
0: of course. Emotions shall support. You.